Jesus, we do exalt your name, for your name is the name above every name. You are the one, the only one who could conquer death. You are the only one whose name is beautiful and wonderful and powerful. Oh God, would you increase our awe and our wonder of you? Would you encounter us this morning? For God, more than concepts and ideas and words about you, we need you to encounter us that we might stand in awe of the one whose name is beautiful and wonderful and powerful. Oh God, that's my prayer this morning. May it be our prayer this morning that we would encounter you. For you are high and exalted and above all gods. You are above all things. Would you give us a vision of yourself this morning as you are? We worship you, we love you, and we glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, if you are already standing, and in honor of God's word, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and at this time the children, from kindergarten through sixth grade, as uh, we would turn to Isaiah 6 and either a copy of God's word, they'd be dismissed for children's church at this time downstairs. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, verses 1 through 8, what we will be looking at this morning. It says this, Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one an- and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. May the Lord add his blessing this morning to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. So we have been in this series and continuing in this series on lifting up our low view of God, that we would have a high view of God. And as we have a high view of God, our awe of Him, our worship of Him, our desire for Him increases as our view of Him is lifted up. We've been looking at this through kind of the guide of the book Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, looking at the various attributes of God. We've been looking Uh, at all kind of different attributes of God. Today we're looking at the transcendence, the transcendence of God. Again, a lot of these words are words you don't use on a regular basis. They're kind of church words, but they're, they're words of God. They're theological words. Theology is simply the study of God. And so they're kind of theological church words, and that's why we don't always use them. But yet we need to understand them because they describe for us who God is. And so in this study, I have uh, put up various portions of, of the book, little captions of it. And uh, this morning, I didn't feel like typing because what I, f- what I feel like we need, I need to read from you from Tozer's book is two pages. And I just was lazy, I'll be honest, and didn't want to have like 15 slides of two pages worth. So I'm going to read it for you. So for those of you who um, are like visual learners... I apologize this morning. You can blame me for my laziness. So the divine transcendence. Here's what Tozer says about it that I think shapes our conversation for this morning. 
He says, when we speak of God as transcendent, we mean that he is exalted far above the created universe. So far above that human thought can't imagine it. To think accurately about this, however, we must keep in, in mind that the words far above does not here refer to physical distance from the earth. We kind of think far above as height, but to quality of being. We are concerned not with location in space, nor with mere altitude, but with life. He's talking about the quality of life. He is far above in the quality of life. God is spirit, and to him magnitude and distance have no meaning. To us, as human beings, they are useful analogies and illustrations. So God refers to them constantly when speaking down to our limited understanding. The words of God, as found in Isaiah, say, Thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. High and lofty in the sense of distance. They give us a distinct impression of altitude, but that is because we who dwell in a world of matter, space, and time tend to think in material terms and can grasp abstract ideas only when they are identified in some way with material things. In its struggle to free itself from the tyranny of the natural world, the human heart must learn to translate upward the language the Spirit uses to instruct us. So we need to shift our thinking, he's saying, from just normal ways of understanding far above to spiritual ways, that he is far above us in the quality of his being. So he illustrates it this way. It is spirit that gives significance to matter, and apart from spirit, nothing has value at last. He says, a little child strays from a group of sightseers, and, they bec- and she becomes lost on a mountain. And immediately, the whole mental perspective of the group is changed. Wrapped admiration for the grandeur of nature gives way to acute distress for the lost little child. The group spreads out over the mountainside, anxiously calling the child's name and searching eagerly into every secluded spot where the little one might have found a place to be hidden. What brought about this sudden change? The tree-clad mountain is still there, towering into the clouds in breathtaking beauty. But no one notices it now. All attention is focused upon the search for a curly-haired little girl, not yet two years old, and weighing less than 30 pounds. Though so new and so small, she is more precious to parents and friends than all the huge bulk of the vast and ancient mountain they had been admiring a few minutes before. And in their judgment, the whole civilized world would agree. For the little girl can love and laugh and speak and pray, and the mountain cannot. It is the child's quality of being that gives it worth. Yet, he concludes with this, We must not compare the being of God with any other as we just now compared the mountain with the child. We must not think of God as highest in ascending order of beings starting with the single cell and going, on, uh, up from the, and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to the man to the angel to cherub and ultimately to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence. He's before all of those things. But that's not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of the world and word. And this is what it, he says. Forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created things. 
they both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. What's he saying in all of this? He's saying that transcendence is not about him being high as far as he is way out there and he is lifted up and and we can't see him. Because how often do we pray? We pray sometimes they look up to the clouds because we have this idea that he is high. He is above us. He is enthroned in, in heaven, which is true. But it's looking up as if he is bigger, higher than we are. But higher is about a state of quality of being. God is far superior to us. He is the infinite one and we are the finite. And because God is transcendent, because he is high and exalted, this morning we want to look at what our response is. Isaiah encountered him in his exalted place, and he responded as others in Scripture did, and and we'll consider a couple of those others, when they encountered God. Not because they learned the right way to do it. Sometimes we're looking for what are the steps, what is the right way to encounter God. Isaiah and others responded to him because they encountered one who was completely other than themselves. One who was high and exalted, and they responded in awe and wonder. And they're the responses that we will have when we meet God in that way. More than anything this morning, I desire that we would have an encounter with God, not just knowledge about God. Because the knowledge should lead us to encounter, and when we encounter God, we stand in awe. Because he is transcendent, high and lifted up. Completely other than us. And so how did Isaiah respond, and how would we expect for ourselves to respond in this place? There are four I see in this passage. The first is that when we encounter God, we fear God. When we encounter God, we fear God. Reading the first four verses of Isaiah 6, again, it says, In the year that King Uzziah, King Uzziah was one of the kings of Judah, of the nation of Israel. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Think about that just for a moment. Isaiah saw God. And he says that when he saw the Lord, when he saw God, that the Lord was seated on a throne. And he was high and exalted. When you think of a throne, you think of rulership, you think of power. You think of someone who is in charge, of someone who has high authority. And so he is high and exalted, seated on a throne. He is ruling and reigning with power and authority. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The train, scholars tell us, would be the outer decorative edge of his robe. And so it's just the outer decorative a part of his robe, that edge of his robe, that fills the temple with his presence. <laughs> this is trying to give us a vision of who God is. There's not one of us, no earthly ruler, no earthly person that would have a train, the outer decorative edge that would fill an entire temple. And yet this is God, as Isaiah sees him, on a throne, high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. And above him, are seraphs. Seraphs are angelic beings, each with six wings. With two of the wings, they're covering their faces. It's a symbol of their recognition of their lack of holiness and their lack of worth in comparison to God. Even though these angelic beings are holy and perfect and in the presence of God, still they are not looking upon God because he is that exalted. He is that transcendent. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were doing this. They were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. Now this may be uncomfortable for a moment, but I think it's something that we should do. The seraphs are calling to one another. They are ascribing to God who he is. They are telling of his transcendence, of his high and lifted upness, if that's a word. They are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the Lord all-powerful. No one rivals his power. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So would you do this with me? Would you ascribe, would you join in with what Isaiah saw, the seraphs, in this vision of God, what the seraphs were saying to each other? And would you say it to one another? Would you join me? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Let it sink in. Let's say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full with His glory, filled with His glory. Let's do it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Just imagine this is happening, but not like even we're saying it. Because verse 4 says that the sound of their voices shake the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple. And it's filled with smoke. Have you ever been to a concert or a football game or a baseball game or some sporting event? And the team or the music just gets so loud because maybe the the team scored a touch the Steelers scored a touchdown or someone on the Pirates hit a home run and the fourteen thousand people there went nuts. Whatever it may be, or maybe you're a Pitt fan and you went to a Pitt basketball game and it's loud and it feels like the place is shaking. It feels like the roof. You're like, I hope they built this thing well. You know, the Penguins, maybe Crosby scores a goal in the playoffs, and it sounds like, I hope this thing is structurally sound because everyone's going nuts. The sound is deafening. It's reverberating off the whole place. Get a picture of that. And this is what is going on. Not because somebody scored a goal or there was a touchdown that was scored or somebody hit a home run or there was a great song and everyone went nuts. This is going on because of the transcendent God who is high and exalted, who is lifted up, who has no comparison in all of creation. And the temple is shaking and smoke is everywhere and not because they're smoke machines. This is just the glory of God. Of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, all powerful. The whole earth is full or filled with His glory. How would you respond in that moment? What would your reaction be? Would you be like, oh, this is cool? I don't think so. I think we would be, oh. We would be in utter fear, in utter reverence to be in the presence of one who was so high and exalted and lifted up. In Exodus Chapter 19, the Israelites have one of their first views of God. And they're at Mount Sinai about to get the Ten Commandments. Moses is about to receive the Ten Commandments. And it says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, Mount Sinai. 
and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp, we're talking several millions of people, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Later in chapter 20, verse 18, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. They encountered God. They saw God manifesting his presence in that way, and they trembled with fear. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, had an encounter with not even God himself, but an encounter with an angel sent by God. And it says this in Daniel chapter 10, verse 4, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man, dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. And this is just an angel, lower, and not even in the same category as God. And it says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. (laughs) They didn't even see what Daniel saw, but they knew they were in the presence of something that was not like them, and they fled in terror. And so Daniel says, I was left alone gazing at this great vision, and I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. And a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Isaiah sees a picture of God, a vision of God. The people see God descend, not even looking fully at him, just seeing him veiled, but his power and his glory. Daniel has an encounter of a vision with an angel, not even God. And every single time, they're left with... Friends, when was the last time you were in the presence of the Lord and all you could say was... When all you had was fear and reverence. When all you had was a knowledge and awareness that you were in the presence of one who is unlike anyone or anything in this created world. For you this morning, that may be where you say, before I can go anywhere else, God, I need you like that. I don't know if I've ever seen you like that. I don't know if I've ever known you like that. And here's the good news. He is willing and will pour himself out on anyone who seeks him with all their heart in that way. It may not be immediate, because oftentimes he has to prepare us, but there will be times in the presence of God where you will just stand in holy, reverent fear, encountering the one who is high and exalted and lifted. Fearing God. Sometimes we think it's a bad thing to fear God. To be afraid of Him, to run away, that's not good. But a fear and a reverence of acknowledging this God is way above me. This God can't be controlled. This God can't be manipulated. This God is awesome. That is good. And that is needed. And it is the response that comes when we 
encounter him. Second response when we encounter him in this way is that we come undone. We come undone. Verse 5 says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. Or the literal understanding would be, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah's response is, Woe is me, I am ruined, I am undone. All because of his sin and the sin of the people of Judah. In the presence of God, he has a way of undoing us. He has a way of knocking from under us everything that holds us up. He has a way of loosening our grip on the things that we hold dear. The things that we build our lives upon. The things that prop us up that we turn to when we're weak. He has a way of undoing our pride. Of our self-righteousness, of what we think we can bring him that is going to make us pleasing in his sight. He has a way of undoing our wealth, of our talents, and our abilities, and our accomplishments, and everything that we prop ourselves up with, and everything that we build our lives upon that are not him and are not him alone. He has a way in his presence of knocking those things out from under us. Not even because a lot of those things are bad. Sometimes a lot of those things are, are okay. They're not bad. But when we prop ourselves up with them and we build our lives upon them, when we come into his presence, he has a way of undoing all of that, of knocking it down. I, I had a vision or a picture this, this week as I was thinking about this. How many have gone to Kennywood or to a fair or carnival and you've had those games where you have like the milk jugs and the ball and you got to like start chucking them out there, try to knock them down? Anyone? Anyone see that game? All right. You may not have played it, but maybe you walk by and be like, oh, they're wasting money on that thing. You know, I'm never going to play that, that game. But you're watching it or you're throwing it. And sometimes they knock that top one off. Sometimes they knock a couple off. And God will do that sometimes. He'll, in his presence, he will knock these things down. And ultimately what he does is he knocks all the things at the bottom. He knocks all those milk jugs down. So that it's just we're just left with nothing to hold on to, with nothing to bring to him as, God, look what I have so that you will be pleased with me. undoing us. This is the literal sense of what Isaiah is saying. He's standing in the presence of God. He has this vision, and he says, Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. I am fully exposed. This is the God who sees everything about me, who knows everything, and I am not worthy to be in your presence. Some may think that this coming undone is a bad thing. That we should somehow be strong. That we should somehow have it all together. But the reality is, coming undone is actually, when you get to that place in the presence of the Lord, it's actually the very best place that you can be. The ways of God are backwards from the ways we think. We think, I have to have it together. (laughs) I have to hold it all. I have to present the right way. I have to hold on to everything and for everyone. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm ruined. And here's why. Because the third thing that happens when people are in the presence of God, there's fear of him come undone, but it gives us an opportunity, and this is why it's good, to embrace grace. 
It gives us an opportunity to embrace grace. Verses 6 and 7 again say, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal, so a coal on fire in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin has been atoned for. The seraph brings this coal and addresses what has been brought undone. What is the thing that has ruined Isaiah in the presence of God? He comes and he addresses us. He addresses it. This is the good news. This is the good news, is that when we're in the presence and we're undone, that is when we are able to receive and embrace the grace of God. We don't receive and embrace the grace of God when we've got it all together. When I'm holding everything, when I'm bringing my self-righteousness and my pride and all the things that I have, when I'm bringing it to God and saying, God, look, aren't you happy with me? Aren't you happy with me? It's when we come to him and he ruins us and he brings us undone that then we are able to embrace and receive the grace of God where he is able to meet us right where we're broken. How many of us know that the reason we hold on to some of these things that say, look how good I am, is because we recognize that there's brokenness there, and so we're trying to make up for it. We're trying to atone for it. We're trying to cover up all that is wrong that we sense deep within us. And so we bring it, and we try to strive, and we try to do, we try to offer to be pleasing to God and pleasing to others. He says, come to my presence, let yourself be undone, because there I'm able to address the broken parts. That is where we embrace grace. A friend of mine had an experience with the Lord one time. She said it was fine to share whenever I would sense the need to share that. She had a time with the Lord where she was encountering God. God was encountering her. And she was in the presence of the Lord, and she was in this place of being undone. And the Lord was showing her various things in her life. And then she had this Isaiah vision of an angel, a seraph coming with a hot coal and touching her lips to atone. And it took it from this this. Oh yes, this is what happened to Isaiah, to what God was doing in her life. And the crazy thing about that whole time with the Lord for her was that not only in this time with God, in this vision that God was giving to her, did an angel come and touch her lips with a coal, but she experienced pain on her lips. And after the whole time was over, she had gone to the bathroom and there was a mirror there and she looked and there was a a burn on her lips. <laughs> and after that, I saw it. <laughs> she told me the story. And there was, there was this burn mark on her lip. It wasn't something that she was like, I gotta go get medical attention or anything like that. But it was a reminder for her that she had been in the presence of God and God had touched And she didn't see it as this was a bad thing. She said, I've never embraced, I've never seen the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God like I did in that moment. And maybe some of you are like, that's weird. Maybe. But God met her. And so we embrace grace in two ways, I think. In this passage, one is to forgive us of our sin, clearly. Isaiah's sin was forgiven. The coal took the guilt away and atoned or covered over or made up for his sin. Somewhere around 600 years later, God made opportunity for all of us to experience this. It was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who on the cross took our guilt from our sin away and atoned for it with his blood. His blood was shed to cover over and atone for, to make up for, to make right, to pay for the price of our sin. So we embrace the grace of God as Isaiah embraced the grace of God through the coal coming. The cross is where we embrace the grace of God for our sins to be forgiven. But we also embrace grace to keep us from sinning. We embrace grace to forgive us, but we also embrace grace to keep us from sinning. In Exodus chapter 20, verse verse 20, I read... uh, earlier that section of the Israelites seeing God, seeing him on the mountain, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And again, verses 18 and 19 say this of Exodus 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And then we see this idea that it's not just about being forgiven of sin, but it's to keep us from sinning, the grace of God. Moses said to the people, Exodus 20, 20, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Listen to that. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. See, when there is no reverence of God, there is no reason to not sin. You can have all the rules in the world, and and, and we see this more and more. You can have all the rules, all the laws, all the legislation passed. You can have all of this, but if there is not fear of God, why do I follow what is being set out? I don't care. You could have the law of God, and the Ten Commandments were there for the law of God to how to live with God and with other people. And you can have all of this, But if you don't fear him, if you don't stand in awe of him, what's the big deal? They're just laws that are there to be broken. But when we get a vision of God, when we see him for who he is, and we stand in reverence and we spend time with him, not to check a box off or not because this is the the Christian thing to do only, but we spend time to encounter him, now I don't want to do that. I'm still going to mess up from time to time, still going to sin from time to time, but not because I'm like, yeah, who cares? Because I've got a vision of God, and this vision of God makes me go, whoa. This vision of God, I see him as high and exalted and lifted up. I encounter him, and he puts me in a place where I'm undone. I don't then go back and be like, now I'm going to go do my own thing. Thanks. I'll receive your forgiveness. I'm going to go do my own thing. No, we remember who God is. We encounter who God is. And all of a sudden, when we are in that place where should I do this or should I not, and we have a reminder of this is God, and I've stood in his presence I don't want to offend. I don't want to sin against him. It changes our motivation. Friends, we are in places where we come undone not to go back where we were before. but to be remade, to have Christ live in us and through us by his Spirit. And all the while we have the confidence of who God is and his nature and his character in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, that says this, for this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name 
is holy. I actually think I have this up there. This is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite, humble, lowly in spirit, sorrowful, lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Here's where we don't fully, it doesn't make sense to us. We think of fear, undone, grace. Now it's about him forcing us. We live in this kind of coward fear. No, we get him. He's with us. He's living in us. He begins to live through us. When we encounter the transcendent God and we come undone and his grace is poured out upon us at the cross, his grace stays with us and he begins to be present. And the more we stay with him, the more we stay close to him, the more we live and learn to live in his presence and be aware of who he is and where he is with us, the more his life begins to live through us. It's, it's a testimony of Paul. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So that the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. And the testimony of hundreds of years, centuries of Christians who have gone before us, is that when we spend time in the presence of God, when he undoes us, when his grace is poured out, that there's this amazing transaction that the Spirit of God then begins to live powerfully through us. And it's not just fear that keeps us from doing the wrong things, but now it's him that keeps us from doing the wrong things. And even more, that empowers us to do the right. Lastly, what happens when we encounter the transcendent God? We, are, we have compelled response. Compelled response. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, After all this has happened, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us as in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity there. And I said, Here am I. Send me. The voice of the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here am I, send me. There is nothing forced. His arm is not twisted. He does not say, Let me pray about it and get back to you. No. He is compelled to respond to the question with the answer, here am I. Friends, our worship, our serving, our engagement of mission, our loving others, those that are easy and those that are hard, our giving with our time, our talents, our finances, our obedience to the ways of God, everything flows out of a reverent fear of God that undoes us, but is met with his grace. And it's not something that we should do or even dare not do, but it's something that I can't help but do. It's like the young man who meets a beautiful young lady. And he is in awe of her. And they begin to talk and it's a hot July day, and it's 95 and muggy, and he can tell that she is just dying of thirst. She even mentions it. He responds. And you've seen it, you may have done it. He responds almost stupidly. He runs so fast, he almost falls on his face. He's so excited to go get this beautiful young lady a bottle of water that he almost falls on his face. Why? Because he has had an encounter with her that has messed him up in a good way. And he's like, I am going to go get this girl some water, not because it's what I should do, 
Not because she's asked me to do it, but because I can't help. I see her. I got to get this for her. Do you see the difference? Not a, hey, can you get me a glass of water? Yeah, okay. Shoulder slumped. Not a, I don't know. You can figure it out yourself. None of that. Uh, I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm going so hard after this. He's compelled. And that's what happens when we encounter God in this way. Our response to him in the things that he asks of us, in the expectations that he gives to us, in the ways of Jesus become, yes, yes, I'm compelled. I want to. I can't help it. Worship becomes something that it's not just I, I should do it, but I can't help but give myself to him. I can't help but worship. I can't help to go all out in the quality of my worship because I've been in the presence of this God. And he's undone me. And he's poured out his grace. And he continues to pour out his grace. And why would I not? And so let's end there this morning with the worship team leading us in worship. As they come, just pray blessing. We'll sing and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, You are the transcendent God. You are high and exalted and lifted up. God, I know my words can't even begin can't even begin to capture who you are. Oh God, how we need you to reveal yourself to us. how we need the scriptures to come alive to us that we would see you high and exalted and lifted up. Oh, how we need our times of prayer to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you as you are. Oh, how we need, oh, how we need you to manifest, to make yourself known, even as we would worship, that we would pour out our hearts that you would undo us where we need to be undone, that you would pour out your grace in its place and that we would be compelled to respond. God, I simply ask that you would help us to see you. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name.